Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're learning tips for making friends as adults, uncovering herbalist secrets for having more energy and less anxiety, or hearing all of the latest science about our dental health. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics sound good to you, scroll on back in the archives. Today's episode is all about relationships, and we're talking about them in a really raw, honest, and vulnerable way. Whether you're single and wanting to develop tools to improve future relationships, or you're in a happy relationship you're looking to optimize, or an unhappy relationship you're looking to improve and even wondering if you should get out of, there is so much good advice in here. I'm excited to welcome John Kim, aka The Angry Therapist, to the podcast. John is a licensed marriage and family therapist, best-selling author, podcast host, and creator who pulls back the curtain on his own life to share real relationship tips with the world. John has racked up over 750,000 followers on social media, and his newest book, It's Not Me, It's You, which he co-wrote with his partner, Vanessa, shows the perspective of both sides of their relationship to analyze and untangle the common and frustrating barriers many individuals face on the road to a happy, loving, and rewarding partnership. I love John because he is so open about his own relationship, but he also has years of client experience under his belt, so he can bring in so many different perspectives when tackling relationship challenges. On this episode, we talk about red and green flags to look for in relationship partners, exactly how to identify your toxic tendencies in a relationship, the one thing that holds every relationship back, and how to get past it, how to identify your needs and what to do if your partner isn't meeting them the first step to crushing feelings of resentment in your relationship, exactly what to do to bring the passion back into a relationship, why people pick toxic partners and exactly how to stop, step-by-step instructions for giving your partner uncomfortable feedback, the thing you should be doing twice a day for a more satisfying relationship, and no, it is not sex, what to do if your partner doesn't share the same interests or values as you, how to set boundaries with your partner's family and friends, and so much more. As always, John and I would both love to hear your thoughts as you're listening, and I really want to know what your biggest takeaways are for your own relationship or for any of your friends' relationships, so definitely screenshot and tag us both on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and he is at The Angry Therapist. And if you love this episode, please share it with somebody that you love. May I suggest your partner, your parents, or that friend who keeps ending up in toxic relationships no matter how much you guys just sit down and talk about it to death. There is so much valuable information in here. I can already think of a few friends who need to hear this, although I will not be calling them out here. Also, friendly reminder that if you are sharing the episode anyway, you might as well enter my Vitamix giveaway. We hit my 2000 review goal and we also passed the 3 million download mark a while ago, so I decided that it was high time to celebrate with a little thank you gift. I'm giving away three Vitamixes, which are always the thing that you request the most, and I get it. They are literally the best blender in the world, and I make my green smoothies in mine every single morning. The only downside is that they cost $550 each, which is why I am so excited to gift three of you, three lucky winners, with one of your very own. To enter, just make sure that you've left a podcast review or rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. There is no need to mention the giveaway. I will just ask you to send a screenshot if I choose you as a winner. And then tag a friend on my Instagram post about the giveaway and tell them what episode of the podcast they would like and why. You can tag as many friends as you'd like and you will get a new entry every single time. 
And if you don't have Instagram, just share an episode with a friend by text or email and tell them why they would like it. Then send a screenshot to giveaway at lizmoody.com with the subject line Vitamix entry. Again, you can get entries for every single time that you share. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has already entered and who wrote reviews and shared the podcast long before I was giving you a Vitamix for it. You are all truly the absolute best community, and I am just honored to get to share this space with you. Okay, let's get right into it with John Kim. All right, John, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I'm so excited to dive into all things relationships. Thank you for having me. I love that you want to talk about relationships. I think it's very needed in the world. Let's just dive right in. What do you think is a low-hanging fruit, like one easy thing that we could all be doing to have better relationships, but that you find a lot of people are skipping or ignoring? Trying to understand before trying to be understood. Most of my 20s and half of my 30s before my divorce, I used to go into conflict and conversations, trying to prove a point, putting on my lawyer hat. I'd be very defensive. I would try to get my partner to understand me first instead of trying to understand her. And if you flip it and you actually make an intention where you tell yourself, I'm going to try to understand before I try to be understood. And then if you have two people doing that, it really creates a safe space because it's not about how many times we fight. It's about how we fight. And I think this sets us up for a conversation and people being heard instead of just defensiveness. So for yourself, do you think it's just about switching the mindset in which you enter a fight? Yeah, it's hard because we're human. It's hard for us to let go of ego and our tug of war rope, but more importantly for us to stop our old habits. I think it's taking a breath and telling yourself, this is where I'm going to pull from. This is going to be the mindset. And you're not doing it for your partner because if you do that, you might have resentment because you're like, oh, I do all these things for him or her. You're doing it for yourself because we all have a responsibility to bring that to the table in any relationship. And what if you're doing it and you're like, yes, I am approaching my fights in this really evolved way. I'm trying to understand them. And then you find that your partner is not taking the same approach with you and that stokes a sense of frustration. That's the hard part, right? I think you should feel good about yourself because you're doing this, but I also think you have to express yourself. I think you should say, I wonder if we could both go into fights this way. I would not tell your partner what to do or what he or she is doing wrong, but include a lot of we's. I know that we get into a fight a lot or our fights go south or we leave with anger. What if we did it this way? What if we did it like this? What if we both tried to understand each other first before trying to be understood? I'm going to do it that way. I think that's what a healthy relationship looks like. What do you think? It's like the huddle before the game. Do you think it's better to set the rules for fights before they happen? Is that even a possibility? Is that something you would recommend? Yes, we should definitely set the rules for fights. And this is something that no one does, right? We just go into it. You should definitely set rules because it wouldn't be fair. It's like going into a fist fight and the other person has a gun. There has to be rules like one, there should be no character assassination. You can't go into a fight and tell someone, oh, you're a piece of shit or you're an asshole or whatever. It's not going to go anywhere. No one leaving or checking out 
unless they're telling the person that I just need a few minutes, I'll be back. Because this happens too. A lot, some people can't handle it. They just get up and walk and they leave. You're exiting the relationship, even if it's for an hour. I've heard other people recommend that taking a break to cool down is actually a good thing. You don't think that that is a good thing if it's communicated in that way? It requires the communication. You got to tell the person you're taking a break that you're coming back, right? So a lot of people just get angry and they just walk out. That's what I'm talking about. That's not good. And then another rule would be let's seek to understand before we try to seek to be understood. Are there any other rules you think would be useful to establish before a fight? I think we are fast to point fingers. This book, you know, is about breaking the blame cycle, taking ownership. And I think that looks different for everyone. And I think there's an honesty to it, right? So you're not just pointing fingers at your partner saying, well, tell me how you're taking ownership. Instead, you are holding up a mirror to yourself and saying, okay, here are my shortcomings. Here are my unhealthy patterns. Here's how I go into fights or, or here's me putting old blueprints onto you or us in trying to trace, you know, old love, whatever it is, what are you bringing to the table that is contributing to the unhealthiness and then take ownership? A lot of people don't take ownership. They blame. And then they like, oh, well, if he could only do this, or if he was only this way, there's a lot of that instead of saying, what am I doing? What can I do to change this? Do you have some tips or some things that we could try out in our own lives to start to identify what those blockages might be for ourselves, like what we are bringing to the table in terms of negative dynamics? Yeah. Go see a therapist. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, that would be that would be great. But you know what? Many people can't. I know it's expensive and it would blah, blah, blah. But if you can't do that, then I would say looking at your patterns, right? Understanding self. For example, your love language and your attachment style, like that's been a huge game changer for me, understanding how I give and receive love. I'm words of affirmation and I'm touch, right? And my partner, Vanessa, she's acts of service. So I have to understand that about myself or I'm going to think that she's not loving me when it's not that she's not loving me. She's not loving me in the way that I want to be loved, hence the compromise and understanding. Attachment styles, I tend to lean toward anxious, right? I'm holding onto her leg <laughs> and she's avoidant, meaning that when I hold onto her leg, she wants to run. So understanding that the homework for me would be like, oh, I tend to be more anxious when I feel the anxiety or if I feel undesired or I feel like I need something like a poem or for her to say that I'm attractive or whatever it is I need before demanding it. How long can I sit with it? How can I self-soothe, right? That's the ownership piece. That's hard. That's where most people drop the ball. That's what we call the work, you know, the actual work. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. When I worked as a magazine editor, I wrote more than a thousand articles about turmeric because pretty much all of the doctors that I used as sources kept recommending it or citing it as one of the supplements that they would personally take. Here's the background. Turmeric is one of the most powerful ways to fight inflammation. In a nutshell, there are two types of inflammation, acute and chronic. Acute inflammation can actually be a good thing. It's one of the ways that your body heals and repairs itself. But when that system goes haywire, we get chronic inflammation, which essentially makes your body feel like it's constantly under attack. 
The vast majority of doctors I work with cite chronic inflammation as one of the root causes of so many of our modern ailments, and research links inflammation with heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune conditions, cancer, arthritis, and gut issues like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. I am never going to sit around and tell you that a supplement will cure everything that ails you, but if you're looking for a turmeric supplement to help get your inflammation under control, I am extremely impressed with Paleo Valleys. To increase the bioavailability of turmeric, you need to consume it with black pepper, which most people know, and fat, which many people forget about. Paleo Valley's turmeric complex has black pepper and coconut oil to maximize absorption, and three other powerful anti-inflammatories, ginger, rosemary, and clove, for a maximum synergistic response. It also has no fillers, binders, or preservatives, and is made with all organic ingredients and just a veggie capsule. Finally, it's third-party tested, which is something I always look for in supplements as extra assurance of their quality. I've had my uncle taking this for about three months, and he's gone from having debilitating back pain due to an autoimmune condition to being almost completely pain-free. Paleovality has a number of other incredibly high-quality, food-derived supplements, including a vitamin C that I adore. Vitamin C is my ultimate favorite supplement for skin health. And a NeuroEffect mushroom powder that Zach loves for increasing energy and focus. So definitely explore their website. If you'd like to check out the turmeric complex, the vitamin C, the NeuroEffect, or any of Paleo Valley's other amazing products, head over to paleovalley.com and use the code LIZM for 15% off. That's paleovalley.com and code LIZM for 15% off your order. And if you have any questions, feel free to hit me up on Instagram. I love chatting about this stuff. Now, let's get back to the episode. How much is it our partner's responsibility to give us those things that we need? Let's say we need affirmation. We need them to tell us we're great. We need them to show up and support us in that way versus us sitting with it and doing the work personally. So that's what's interesting is how much of it is a legitimate need that you should ask for and how much of it is something you can take care of. And how do you identify when it's which one? That's a great question. I don't have a blanket answer. It's like learning how to ride a bike before popping wheelies <laughs> and taking jumps. You got to just learn with the flow. You just kind of feel it out. For example, what I know about myself is I'm highly sexual and I'm always wanting sex probably more often than my partner. And so if we, let's say, go for a month, I think it's fair that that's a need I express, right? And also not demand. But if we just had sex two nights ago, maybe I could take care of myself. You know what I'm saying? Maybe not telling my partner that she's not loving me in the way that I want. So I'm just using that as an example, but I think it's checking in with yourself. What is the legitimate need that you deserve? And what is your own stuff coming up? What is residue? What is yours to own? Cognitive distortions or tracing old love blueprints. It's so tricky to suss it out though, because even that example you gave is sort of based on what our expectations of an amount of sex we can reasonably have is you're like, oh, well, a month is a long time and two days is not a long time. And I think those expectations, it's hard to even figure out what comes from inside you, what comes from society, what comes from what direction. It can make it really tricky to be like, I feel like it's a constant thing I see coming up in relationships, including my own, is like, what is a reasonable need? And when can I ask for that for my partner? So I'd be curious if you have any other examples just as we try to Tickle that out a little bit. Yeah. And it's going to change as your relationship with yourself changes. 
from the work that I've been doing, I've noticed that most of my clients, mostly female, struggle with expressing their needs because they're used to taking care of their partner, whether it is an emotional need, sexual need. And so just to start riding that bike is going to be difficult, right? Just for that person to be like, okay, what do I need today? And then can I actually ask for this? That's really hard. The ownership is actually the ability to execute that, the ability to say, hey, listen, tonight, can you put the baby down or I'm going to go out with my friends. I need this for myself, whatever it is that you need. Or if you're just telling someone how you want to be touched, there's a lot of stuff in the bedroom that especially women, I think conditioning society, they don't express what they want. They kind of go with the flow or white knuckle through things because that's what they're used to. Do you have any tips for navigating that actual conversation? Are there ways that we can get clear on the need and actually understand what we're asking for? And then are there tips for expressing ourselves in a way that won't make things worse? I think the primer is to first share with your partner your evolution and what you're going through, that you are trying to be a better human or love in a different way. I don't think it's about kicking doors down and giving people ultimatums. If you say to your partner, you've never loved me in this way, here's my checklist, this is what I need or I'm out, right? I don't think that's helpful. Many people wait until they get there, which is almost like too late. I think, hey, I'm going through a lot of internal growth and curiosity and connecting a lot of dots. And uh, I just want to share with you what I'm interested in and also how it applies to us. So I would start macro. And you could talk about how you're not willing to get involved in lopsided friendships, or now you're finally going to send your mom to voicemail, whatever it is, right? Start macro. And then I would say, more importantly, I want to talk about us. And here's what I'm noticing. So this is where you got to be careful. And instead of pointing fingers, here's what I'm noticing happening with me. And then you got to give them a chance to share. What are your needs? How can I support you? You got to hit the ball back. And what I've come to the conclusion is, this is how I need you to touch me. This is what I want. You can't just give someone a list. You got to have a conversation. And then the way that you hold hands is by sharing your story, where you're at, your evolution. And then when you have two people doing that, then you are supporting each other. And then it becomes two people championing their own evolution and growth, not someone getting scolded because they're doing something wrong. Okay. So let's say you sit down, you've worked up the gumption, you've had this conversation, you've done it exactly the way that you've described, but your partner either shuts down and is just like, this is offensive. You're saying I do it wrong all the time. I'm not open to this critique. So does that mean I've been doing it wrong all of these years? Like, I think that there's a lot of potential for offense. There's a lot of potential for shutting down. And then I think on the other side, you could be like, well, what are your needs? And they could be like, well, everything's fine. I'm happy with our relationship as is. I don't understand why you're trying to change things. So what do you do if you're running into a brick wall with this conversation? So what you're talking about is either defensiveness, which is common, or minimization, that person not being aware that there's anything wrong. Either one, they're both spaces where you're not being heard. There's a rejection. Instead of I'm hearing you, it's you're crazy or I'm not into this. Do your thing, that kind of thing, which creates unsafe spaces. I would then express what I'm feeling, say, hey, I think you're being defensive or you're minimizing this, you know? And if after that point, you're not getting any buy-in, I would have a conversation with myself slash therapist to see if this relationship is right for you. 
if the person is constantly defensive, you're only 50% of anything in any relationship. So what, what can you do other than express what you want and how you're changing and sharing your journey and being vulnerable? You can't force someone to do things that they don't want to do. Are there things that we should be looking out for that would be signs like this relationship might not be right for me that are outside of, I think, the much larger things that we all know to look out for, but those little things that you're like, oh, maybe that actually is a sign that I should be reconsidering this. Yeah. And I think the little things are big. Defensiveness is huge. If you're with someone who doesn't take ownership ever and always flips it back, you're building on sand. You can't do anything with that. Right. So defensiveness to me is a huge red flag that this needs to be worked on. So my partner and I wrote this book. She's also a therapist and she's an expert in that huge topic of dependency. And one of the signs that she says where you need to take responsibility is if you feel any kind of resentment. And I thought that was really good. So if in your body you're feeling resentful, it's time to talk. If your partner is not expressing the resentment, but is pushing it down, holding on to it. This is not sustainable. It's going to come out eventually. This is a generalization, but from the clients that I've worked with, a lot of women are mad. A lot of women are resentful because they have not expressed their needs. Their expectations haven't been met. They've just been pushing things down and they just become stones in the relationship shoe. <laughs> and over time, it builds like a plaque. And then suddenly they're done. Like feelings have changed, you know? So if you're feeling ongoing resentment, you should be trying to have a conversation first, right? Like you're not like saying that's a sign you should leave the relationship. Right. I don't ever think you should just leave. I think that's irresponsible. Everything should be talked about. It's when you talk about it and you get no change, you get no empathy, understanding, no attempt to change. That's different. But everything should be expressed and talked about first, of course. It's like you have a toothache and you just keep ignoring it, and then it's bigger than a cavity, now it's a root canal, right? Or you just got to pull it out. So resentment is a sign that your tooth is hurting. You got to go to the dentist. You got to go research it. It's, it's not going to get better. Resentment doesn't just go away on its own, you know? So if you're feeling resentful, what would that conversation look like? Going back to ownership, how much of the resentment is because your partner is doing something or did something wrong or hurtful, and how much of it is on you? Just because you have resentment doesn't mean that you could just explode on your partner because there are things in there that you need to own maybe as well. Super pragmatically, would you be like, I'm resentful about this thing and sit with it and say, what is my part? What is my side of the street? And then go to your partner and say, this is my side of the street. Here's what I need from you too. Yes, but you're going to your partner not to point fingers. You're going to your partner to share your journey with your partner. So you're saying, hey, I noticed or I had this conversation or I heard this podcast, something came up for me. I was thinking about resentment and I'm trying to take ownership of this. And here's my part in it. I'm mad at you for this, but this is my part in it. And it stems back to my fears, childhood, whatever. Let's talk about this. What do you think? And if the person gives you nothing back, that's telling. That's not a good sign. But if the person is, you know, I understand, oh, I get it. Whether it's an apology or it's him or her just kind of explaining where they're at and what they feel, if it makes you feel heard, if it makes you feel safe, if it makes you feel understood, those are all pointing to healing, forgiveness. If it makes you feel unsafe, if it makes you feel 
unheard, unsupported, those are all huge signs that this may not be fixable because the other person has to have the ability to hear you. Maybe not every single time, but overall, cumulatively, the relationship is only going to thrive if two people are being heard, understood, championed. When that stops, the plane goes down. What if it's not a bigger thing like resentment? So I'm thinking about you mentioned your love language thing, and I know a million people who would like their partner to take that love languages quiz online, and their partner is just like, this is stupid. I don't want to do this. I don't believe in this. They're just not willing to... or interested or validating that type of worker growth. Do you have any advice for that type of situation? Yeah, I'd like to answer this with a story. So I, uh, like many people, thought love languages was kind of a gimmicky thing that sold self-help books and think it's a great hook. But coming from the clinical world, like, is it real? All that kind of stuff. In my relationship, the one I'm in now, my love language is words of affirmation and touch. Hers is acts of service. And so one day she was getting ready for a session and she was over the sink and she dropped her earring. It was important, really important to her. Went in the sink. She was freaking out. She had to go into a session. She told me I lost the earring. I'll get it. Don't touch the sink. Don't run the water. And while she was in session, I just thought, okay, I'm going to go to the hardware store. I'm not like a tool man or I can't build shit. Like I'm not that kind of guy, but I went and bought a crescent wrench or, you know, I went and bought some tools. <laughs> Look at you laughing at me. Well, this is also why it, I think it meant so much to her because I'm not that kind of guy, right? Yeah, for sure. I would call the plumber, but I opened the thing up and I got the earring and I put it on the counter, put it all back together. And when she came out of the session, that meant more to her than me if I was to write her name in the sky, right? We have this joke that if I wrote her name in the sky, she would be like, how much did that cost? <laughs> After that, I realized, holy shit, that's what she finds valuable. That's what makes her feel safe or turned on or whatever. Like if I lost a piece of jewelry and she got it, I'd be like, oh, thanks. Can you tell me I'm beautiful? Or can you touch me <laughs> or do something, you know, that kind of, so knowing that, so from that day on, I was like, oh, I get it now. That's how she receives and chooses to love. It doesn't mean to just fully accept your partner's love language and that's who they are. I mean, of course, but it's also compromise, right? So it's her knowing mine and she has notifications in her phone that notifies her and says, hey, say something nice to John. <laughs> I know it sounds really technical, but she's not wired that way. So those notifications help her stretch, help her love me in a way that I want to be loved without her compromising herself. I don't have notifications in my phone, but I'll make an effort to make sure the cars or acts of service, right? Go get the food because I know those things matter to her. So when you have two people who understand each other in the way that they want to give and receive love, and they're both actively working on stretching for the other partner, that produces a lot of relationship glue. When it comes to love, it's like 92 octane right? It's a turbo. So how do we give our partner an earring moment if they don't have an earring moment? How do we make them understand the value of that type of thing? Not specifically love languages, but love language as an example of a category if they don't understand the value of it. So if the earring thing happened and I had revelations from it and that was great, but you're right. What if events like that never happen? Well, this is why we have to have talked to our partners. This is why we have to say, hey, I realized Here's my love language. Is this yours? What do you think? How does it show up in our relationship? What would you like more of? And then it gives your partner the opportunity to say, you know what? It's hard for me to say, but here's what I would like more from you. Touch or quality time or, hey, can you put the phone down? 
and I'm realizing I've always wanted it. I'm just too scared to tell you. But thank you for coming up to me and starting this conversation because you're setting up the ball, allowing me to hit it back. And this is what I would like. And then in that moment, when you're vulnerable like that, there's that connection, right? So it's not even just about what you're talking about, but it's about two people who are putting the shield down. And instead of being defensive, they're expressing their needs, which is something that people may not be used to. So it forms closeness. Is the idea that your partner can initially think that the concept of love languages is stupid, but the expectation is that your partner doesn't think your needs, your desires to talk about the love languages is stupid, and that's where you need to start from, essentially? Yeah, and it's never about the concept. And they can have opinions about theories and concepts, and they have a right to say, I don't think it's for me or it's stupid, whatever, great. But they shouldn't say that you're stupid. If it's important to you, they should at least hear about it. And I think that's also telling. You may be interested in something that your partner has zero interest in, but because you're interested in it, your partner should at least, like if you're into rock climbing, your partner may not climb rocks with you and that's okay. But if you want to tell your partner about your experiences, your partner should listen if they care about you and your life and your passion. Yeah, I totally agree. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. I am so excited to introduce you to today's podcast guest. You're definitely familiar with them if you follow me on Instagram because I've talked about them like a million times. I basically need to have my nails look cute all the time since I'm shooting so many videos with my hands in them. I also feel like having my nails be bright and happy and colorful is such a tiny, easy way to boost my mood. And there's actually a lot of science around how seeing beautiful colors makes us happier, so why not harness that on our hands, which we see all day long? That's where Olive and June comes in. I've been using Olive and June's Manny system to give myself at-home manicures for the past two years, and I'm honestly still shocked every single time at how good it looks, since I used to do my nails at home before Olive and June, and it truly looked like a five-year-old had painted them. There are a few secrets to Olive and June's Manny system, which comes with literally everything you need to give yourself a perfect manicure. First, it is so much more affordable than going out and getting a manicure. We're talking like $2 a Manny versus $35 for the same overall results. Also, it comes with the best nail clippers that I have ever used. They're really grippy so they don't slip, and they're straight across so you can do all types of nail shapes, not just oval. And then their cuticle serum is amazing. They actually don't think it's ideal to trim cuticles, and the serum makes it so you don't have to. And then there's something called the poppy, which you pop on the top of the nail polish, and it makes it so much easier to paint with your non-dominant hand. It's a genius little tool. It's wide and flat, so it's so much easier to grip than the tiny little nail polish cap. It stabilizes your hand, and it aligns the brush the right way on your nail so you get a perfect even stroke every single time. And then the polishes themselves are phenomenal. First of all, they literally look like gels. They are so shiny and they don't chip and they last for ages. I'm looking at my nails right now and I painted them like a week ago today, maybe even a little bit longer, and they look like I could have gotten a manicure this morning. They also have the cutest colors. I'm loving like bright, happy colors for spring, but I also think doing sort of like a neutral ombre is such a vibe and they have the perfect colors for both of those looks and so many more. I've honestly never been able to dream up a color in my head that I haven't been able to find on their website. And then the top coat makes everything look so polished and shiny and perfect. And here's a fun secret. Apply a new coat of the top coat every few days. It'll reinvigorate your mani and make it look absolutely perfect even longer. 
And of course, Olive and June's polishes are always seven free, meaning they're completely free of the seven toxic chemicals most commonly found in nail polish formulas. I'm wearing Energize on my nails right now, which is the prettiest light green, and I'm also loving Yura 10, which is like an orange sherbet color, and BP, which is the prettiest pale blue. I also think that the Malibu Sunset Set is so chic. Whenever I wear it, I get a zillion compliments. If you want an even more instant mani, Olive and June just launched their press-ons, which are not only so cutely designed, but actually stay put, are made from recycled materials, and don't damage your nails. If you would like to try Olive and June for yourself and have manis that last over a week, visit oliveandjune.com slash healthier20 for 20% off your first mani system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash H-E-A-L-T-H-I-E-R two zero for 20% off your first Manny system. And then send me pics on Insta of your gorgeous nails. I am so excited to see them. Now let's get back to the episode. What about if we're in a relationship and there aren't any of these red flags, but it also doesn't feel soul satisfying and passionate. Is there any way that we could kick it to the next level? Yeah, I think there's a misconception. And this is partly commercials, advertising, Disney movies. So what we talked about in the book is lightning in the bottle, maybe not being healthy, right? Because I used to be the whole walk into your room, meet eyes, the hair in the back of your neck goes up, and this is the one. And sure, romantic, and that's exciting. And that's what I thought love was. And I realized that sometimes that lightning in the bottle can be dysfunction. It could be unhealthy patterns from childhood. And you may be attracted to this person because it smells familiar and you're used to chaos. Sometimes if the attraction is that animalistic and crazy, where you just see nothing else but that person, chances are it's probably not coming from a healthy place. So us hanging everything on that lightning in the bottle or chemistry or love has to be amazing or something's wrong. I think it's not realistic. I think you're setting yourself up for a fall. The truth is love is hard. People leave their socks on the floor. You start getting annoyed by shit and living with someone is hard and we are different. And so love to me is a daily choice. And it's everything we're talking about, taking ownership, trying to understand before trying to be understood, understanding people's love languages and attachment styles and why they are the way they are, seeing the spirit of who they are instead of mm. just what they say and do, judging people, not only on their actions and behavior, but their story and who they are, their soul, their spirit. And it's hard. Like it's really, really hard to do. It's not easy. Some days are harder than others. And that's what love is. And if you glamorize it and think love shouldn't be this hard, I don't think you'll ever hit the high notes. I think you'll just go through a lot of relationships. Do you have any tips for rewiring our brain out of that messaging? I have a girlfriend and she only has that sexual spark with what I can only describe as the most toxic men in the universe. And she'll meet these really nice guys and she'll just be like, but I'm not sexually attracted to them. And I don't want to be like, oh, get in a relationship with somebody you're not sexually attracted to. But I'm also like, this is a result of trauma. Can we move past this in some way? And I don't know what to tell her. Tell her to read the chapter called Swimming Past the Breakers in our book. It's all about this. When you come to a realization that the attraction is maybe coming from an unhealthy place, you have to swim past the breakers. And that means to give your body the experience of something new. And that new may be boring 
or people may think it's boring. She may make a healthy choice to date someone where the attraction is kind of boring or flat, but it's good for her. And then if she sits with that, she may then rewire herself and realize, oh, this is actually what I'm attracted to. And you have to intentionally start to see beauty in the contrast. The only way you break patterns is to be aware of what works, what doesn't work, and lean into what's new. And what's new sometimes is boring. What's new and healthy or good for you, like vegetables, can be like, oh, the chemistry is not that good. And you know what? I'm attracted to them, but it's not fiery like it used to be. We're not putting vials of each other's blood around our neck. And you know what? Okay, if you keep chasing that, your relationship will be the same. The only thing that will change are faces. Or if you lean into something new, sit with it. And then start to see beauty in the contrast, the differences or what you're not used to, then you may give yourself a new love experience. And when you do that, you start to rewire, recondition your body. But you have to swim past the breakers. You have to swim past the discomfort. If after you sit with that and swim past the breakers, if it still is boring, maybe it is boring. Maybe that is truth. But a lot of people don't go there and investigate. They quit fast and then they repeat old patterns. So the idea is go into the discomfort, understand that full experience, and then from that place, you can evaluate whether what you're feeling is a reaction to something or whether it's kind of a true feeling. Yes. Most people don't swim past the breakers. They feel the turbulence or resistance, and then they repeat the old pattern. And by doing so, They don't give themselves the new love experience. So it's not just about thinking what they want. It's about giving their body a new love experience so they feel it. And I think the rewiring happens there, not in just reading self-help books or watching videos or logically knowing what they want. It's the actual experience. It's the moment where you express to your partner something that when you used to express to your other partners, they never made it feel safe for you. But in this moment, they do. And in that moment, you're like, oh, shit. I just told my partner that I don't like him touching me in this way and he didn't leave or he didn't make it about him or he wasn't defensive, but he supported it. So you're dropping into your body and you're sitting with that being like, oh, that's new and that's different. And the sky didn't fall. So your body starts to adapt to this new experience. So I always tell my clients, you got to give yourself a new love experience and it's not just going to fall in your lap. It starts with who you choose what you look at, what you put weight on, all of that. I love that. So I'm going to tell my friend to date the boring guys. I'll be like, I have this podcast and it justifies my telling you to date the boring guys. And then you can evaluate after you have dated them for a little bit, the quote unquote boring guys that you're quote unquote not attracted to. And and I would also say explore when people are dating the whole thing with our types and what we're used to. And I get it. We have our types. I get what we're trying to do. That's fair. But dating is all about exploration. Dating is all about meeting people who are new and different and exciting. And it's a time to redefine everything, whether it's attraction or how someone makes you feel or what your, what your definition is about love in general. Dating is all about shaking that etch-a-sketch and creating something new. My pet peeve about the app dating situation is that I feel like it can really encourage people to stick to a type, even in little tiny ways. Like I don't date guys who are under six foot two or whatever. And I'm like, that means literally nothing in your relationship. And it encourages sticking to a pattern that might not even be the best fit for you. 
Yes, I think that's what's wrong with the swipe culture is it's turned us into baseball cards. We're very impatient, judgmental, and we want things on demand. We want things fast. There's also a lot of false advertising with filters and stuff. We're completely ruining the dating experience. It's not becoming a human experience anymore. I grew up in the 80s. I had to go and approach someone and have the courage to say, hey, uh, <laughs> I'm attracted to you. Would you like to go out or have some kind of engagement? I had to earn it. Today with Swipe Culture, it's a lot of people hiding behind their phones. Would you say with the dating app culture as is, the way around that is to kind of swipe, I forget whether it's left or right, swipe the, the way of being interested in somebody on people who might be outside of your comfort zone or outside of what you would self-label as your type? I would even say if you're used to dating apps to try something different, whether it's a different dating app or get off the dating apps, right? I think the pattern of swiping, especially if that's what's easy and convenient for you, there's no challenge in that. And when there's no challenge, there's no growth. So yeah, if you're someone that just is on the dating app and that's all you know, and then you're just on it for hours, I would put that shit down, go outside, get involved in communities, whether it's fitness or yoga, whatever you're into, motorcycles. At least there, there will be a common thread and then engage with people without your phone and show up in a way that is human and see what happens there. So let's say we have acknowledged relationships are hard. There's going to be socks on the floor. It's not going to be what we've been fed with romantic comedies, but we still want to add a little bit of spark or zhuzh or just feel more connected to our partner. Do you have any specific tips perhaps that we could action in that type of situation? Yeah. We would start with, what do you want? What do you want? A lot of people don't even know. They just fall into things or they get what someone's willing to give them. But we rarely sit down and say, all right, what do I even want in this relationship? Even just that feels weird. Like Liz, if I was to say to you, what do you want in your relationship? It just feels awkward. I feel guilty even saying what I want. It's very awkward, you know? I would actually say that I think if I were to be very honest with myself, and I think a lot of the people I know, if they were to be very honest, it's like for my partner to be obsessed with me, for them to just be like so in love with me all the time. And that's a hard thing to ask for. Because <laughs> I could say, oh, you know what? I want sex on demand. Okay. Is that fair to your partner? Probably not. So if you say you want your partner to be obsessed with you, okay. The fact that you want it is your truth. I get it. Where's that coming from and how much of that want is healthy and fair and how much of it is coming from a place of whether it's insecurity or old love patterns. Lack of self-worth. So if you're saying I want my partner to be obsessed with me, I smell codependency, I smell grabbing, I smell you wanting safety or the promise or you scared the person is going to leave, all those things, right? So yeah. a lot of that may be coming from your own story and insecurity. and so. The way that you get what you want is actually to face <laughs> where it's coming from and why and also expressing that to your partner. So you don't go to your partner and say, hey, listen, I need you to be obsessed with me or I'm out, right? That doesn't work. You say, hey, I realized my truth is I do want you to be obsessed with me. I do want you to do all these things. But I also realized I don't know how healthy that is. I think it comes from whatever, I was cheated on, or I'm scared I'm going to lose you, or insecure, whatever, you kind of follow that thread down, you figure it out. And then your partner will probably give you more of what you want, but in a healthier way. And also you've announced 
that it's not all on the partner. It's not healthy, right? So going back to the sex thing, I'm just using that example because it's just simple. I could say, I noticed I want sex on demand. Whenever I want it, I want it. That's what I want. But I know where it's coming from. It's coming from, I have addiction in my blood, or I realized I have this unhealthy pattern, or whatever it is. Or maybe I'm using sex as a way to hide or numb, or I like the dopamine. So then your partner can understand you and say, oh, I, yeah, I see that. But also, I do want to give you that. So I'll make more of an effort to give you that. But also, we both know that itself is unhealthy. And here's what I'm willing to work on. And here's what your partner is willing to work on. It's the huddle. It's at the end of the day, both people trying to understand each other better as we are each understanding our own self better as well. Is there anything we could do to encourage our partner to do that self-exploration? To understand their needs and where their needs are coming from? Lead by example. I say lead by example because a lot of people point fingers. It's like if you want your partner to get into shape or something, telling them to go to the gym is not going to really help. You could say, hey, listen, I'm concerned because you're not eating healthy and I want you to be healthy. And you, you could express that, but you don't hang the relationship over their head and say, if you don't work out, I'm leaving you. What you do is you express your concerns and then you work out, you set the bar, you go do the things, and then they will see that in you and hopefully that will inspire them. If they don't, they're risking drift. They're risking that, that you guys are going to be different and then it's going to affect attraction lifestyle values and all that. So it's more about expressing where you're at, what you want, who you are, where you want to go. Not about if you don't change in these ways, I'm out. Is there any universal little shift you could share? I'm thinking of the six minute kiss that you had in your book. Is that something that you think everybody could benefit from? Oh, yeah. And I, I like the simple things like that, that we can thread into our daily life because not everyone has time to go on a weekend retreat all these big things that are life-changing. So I like the stuff that we get thread into our daily life. The six-second kiss is something by John Gottman. I think it's so powerful. Six seconds is actually a long time. Oh, yeah. I said six minutes. Six minutes is like a very long makeout session. Oh, did you say six minutes? No, no, no. no. A six-minute kiss is not realistic. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what love language you speak, we all kiss, right? So it doesn't have to be tongue time, all right? So when I say six seconds... Just connecting to your partner via kiss, in this case, for six seconds. I mean, think about it. One, one thousand, two, three, four, five, six. It's enough time where you can feel connection or disconnection. You could feel if someone's angry about something. You know what I'm saying? Because a lot of times a peck, real quick, a hi, bye, see you later. I don't think there's a connection there. You know what? There's, there's just formality. And it becomes more of like a handshake, right? So if you can give your partner a six-second kiss, or you guys can share that, I don't care how busy you are. If you don't have six seconds for your partner, that's putting the phone down and just kissing your partner and being present. I mean, shit, if you don't have that, you shouldn't be in a relationship. And you and Vanessa do that twice a day, pretty much every day? We try to do two a day. Sometimes we don't get it in, but I think one a day is important. And we're both busy. We're running around to doing stuff and creating content and all that to catch each other, to make eye contact, to put things down, to take a breath and just connect for six seconds. It doesn't even have to be a kiss. It could be a six second hug. You know, what's harder than a kiss is actually eye gazing. Look at someone for six. That's look at someone for 10 minutes. I tried that once. It's really awkward. It's very intimate. 
But you think it's worthwhile? I think it's important. If you look at someone, I mean, try to do it naked. It's really vulnerable and strange. It's something we don't do. But what it does is it breaks the pattern of us not being present with each other and connecting and just falling into routines. So whether we're talking about eating dinner or making love or watching TV, we all fall into these patterns where we're just on autopilot. And in that space, drifts can happen. So by breaking that pattern, doing things like a six-second kiss or looking into your partner's eyes for five minutes or whatever it is, yes, it's weird. It's awkward. We're not used to it. But the more awkward it is, the more telling it is that you should do it. Are there any other little tiny tricks for connection that you and Vanessa use in your daily life? The Google Calendar. This is kind of ridiculous. I told myself, I'm never going to be the type of couple that like schedule sex. That's so stupid. It's so unromantic. And here we are, two and a half year old. And if it's not in the Google Calendar, it doesn't happen. And again, going back to what relationships should look like, that could be someone's definition. Like, I'm never going to be in a relationship where I schedule sex because that means there's no chemistry. It's too logical. It's so not romantic. But you know what? That's what relationships, whatever works, right? So we schedule things like that. So whether it's date night or afternoon delight or whatever it is, it's just as important as the meetings and everything else we're doing. So by scheduling, we have a shared calendar. By scheduling it, it means that we're going to make it happen, right? And that's what's important. I think it's hugely important to say these things are important to me and I'm going to give them the same importance. I feel like that's what putting something in a calendar does is it says this is a priority level equal with everything else on here. And we don't do that for our relationships. I love what you said. You're absolutely right. It's not just the fact that you're using a tech tool you're saying, hey, this six-second kiss or this lunch I'm going to have with you or this whatever is just as important as the pitch meeting or the other big things I have on the calendar or this person's birthday or whatever. And, and I think that's what's important. This is a little nuanced, but let's say you have sex scheduled on the calendar. Do you have any tips for like having it I don't know, feel like a mood or a vibe or romantic versus like, hey, I'm here. It's time to, you know, have sex. Is there any way to turn that to a, a real sexual encounter? Yes. And I'm also a student, meaning I'm learning. I think when it comes to intimacy, we need to play with not just the primary colors. You know, that giant 48 box of crayons? Like that, right? So weird oh, colors that you never even knew existed. <laughs> We're not just painting with blue, red, yellow but opal and shades of purple and all that. And what I mean by that is to switch things up. I think it's okay to have a quickie just as much. It's okay to massage each other for three hours. Vanessa and I just took our first Tantra 101 class on, online on Eventbrite. It was very introduction, but we did that as an effort to do something different. And the homework that we got was to massage each other for an hour, but not make it sexual and do things like little kisses and just explore, like just be completely in curiosity and exploration instead of the usual pattern. Okay, well, this happens first and she does this to me, then I do this to her and we can fall into that very quickly. So to actually do something different, put weight on different things. And then the homework was also to not orgasm. And we're like, oh, you want us to touch each other for an hour and not orgasm? That's different, <laughs> you know, and it doesn't mean that every time we get together, it has to be that because that's not realistic. 
but switching things up, playing with the 48 box of crayons, not just the primary colors that we're used to. So applying that to calendared sex, would the idea just be that it doesn't need to be one thing every time? It could just be like, let's just get right into it. And sometimes it might be, let's massage each other. Right. One time can be like, hey, what do you want to do? Let's make that happen. The next time can be, hey, what do you want to do? And sometimes it could just be get right into it. Or other times it can be, let's lay naked for 30 minutes and just kind of massage each other and not put weight on the finish. Great. And then sometimes it could just be graphic, pornographic or whatever you're into, kink, you know. It's not about the prescription or what you should do. It's about breaking patterns. It's about the exploration. I also love that you're talking about the importance of novelty. And I think sometimes we can define novelty as this really big thing. Like I need to go out and have a threesome or role play Mm -hmm. or just like do something that's so out of the box to bring novelty into my relationship. And you're like, you could lay naked next to each other. There's all these little tiny ways to bring novelty in. And I think that makes it feel so much more doable and attainable and achievable. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. You know that I am obsessed with electrolyte powders. I use them as a base for my electrolyte chia fresca, which is my absolute go-to drink for fighting constipation when I travel. That recipe is on my Instagram feed and I highly recommend it. I also love them because it makes it so much easier to drink more water throughout the day. It makes it taste good, but it also makes it actually hydrate you on a cellular level. Let's talk about some of the science behind that for a second. Electrolyte and sodium deficiency is actually at the root of many of the problems that even the healthiest eaters and athletes face. Things like headaches, muscle cramps, fatigue, and even dysregulation of critical hormonal and cellular function. Here's the thing, though. We always hear that we should be drinking more water when we have these symptoms, but drinking more water actually makes the problem worse if electrolytes are not also replaced. Hydration is not just about drinking water. It is critical to hydrate with water plus electrolytes to get to you hydration, which is when we have adequate fluid balance in our bodies. Okay, that was a lot of background. Anyway, these are just a few of the many reasons that I am so excited to be sharing Element with you today. Element is one of my all-time favorite electrolyte drink mixes. You've probably seen me tag and share them on Instagram a bunch. It's made with a science-backed electrolyte ratio and has no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, and no fillers. Two of my favorite things about them are their ratios and commitment to science. They're really similar to a lot of my other favorite brands where they're pushing the research field of hydration science forward. But one of the best parts of Element are their amazing, amazing flavors. I feel like they're very chef-y, like they have a lemon habanero, which I keep meaning to create a mocktail recipe with. They have watermelon, mango chili, and even chocolate, which is actually really delish when added to a smoothie, especially post-workout. If you're listening to this and thinking, wait, isn't sodium bad for you? Let's take a step back. Element is made with a combination of electrolytes and sodium. And it makes sense. We lose both water and sodium when we sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent muscle cramps, headaches, and the energy dips that result from it. But most people only replace the water since we're told so often about the importance of drinking water. But what happens then is your blood electrolyte levels, especially sodium levels, get diluted and your dehydration symptoms only get worse. Element offers the perfect solution where you can drink your water, you can get your electrolytes, and you can feel ready to take on your day, whether you're doing big workouts or hikes or working at a computer. 
If you want to try Element for yourself and see what all of the hype is about, they have a fantastic offer for Healthier Together listeners. Just go to drinklmnt.com slash Liz to get a free Element sample pack, which includes one packet of every flavor with any order. And if you don't love it, Element offers no questions asked refunds on all orders, so there is literally no risk in giving it a shot. You won't find this offer publicly available. The only way to claim it is through my custom link, drinklmnt.com slash Liz. That is drink, then the letter L, the letter M, the letter N, and the letter T.com slash Liz. Now let's get back to the episode. I love that you said that. That is so true. One of the things that Vanessa started doing because we're, we're getting intimate too fast during the middle of the day where there's pressure, what if the baby wakes up, blah, blah. And so uh, she's like, let's just meditate for five minutes as a primer. And so we sit and just kind of breathe together for five minutes. And we're not in panic, fight or flight, and our bodies are in sync. And even something like that, like you said, if you just thread that into your experience, that could give you a new experience, just that five minutes. Yeah, I love that. We've mentioned codependency a few times. I would love for you to share a few signs that we could look for that would signify that we're in a codependent relationship. I think codependency is one of those things that's very misbranded publicly. Absolutely. I don't want to go deeper on this because Vanessa, she's the Koda Yoda on TikTok. And that's her thing. She can bring so much more to the table than me. But I'm going to steal what she says in the book and also what she says to me. In a way, we're all codependent, right? And codependent isn't just you completely losing yourself over someone else. There's a spectrum, right? But one of the ways that she defines it is, if you're okay, I'm okay. And if you're not okay, then I'm not okay. So there's this enmeshment. And you know what? I used to think that was romantic. I used to think like, hey, look, we're together. You go down, I'm going down with you. And now I'm like, uh, no, you should give your partner your hand, not your life. And there's something in that to me. It's like, no, that's not romantic. That's not the notebook. And also maybe culturally, the whole Korean thing where it's all about the whole family is a unit and there isn't any kind of you're your own thing. We're all in it together. It's an interesting that codependency exists in romantic relationships, but also familial friendships. There's so many ways it can manifest. In growing up, lack of boundaries and, and all that, it ripples into our love and relationships it's prevalent. There's different spectrums of it. I know the word is kind of overused, narcissism, but it's a huge, huge part of any relationship, especially romantic. It's something to look at. So let's say we're raising our hand. Could you give us one piece of advice? If that is me, like I do feel like my mood is dependent on everybody's mood around me or something like that. Is there one thing that we could start to do to explore that ourselves right now? I would say if you feel like there's a giant should on if I'm not okay, you shouldn't be okay either. Or if you're not okay, it's going to affect my life. If that rings true to you and you see a pattern of that happening in a lot of relationships, play that out. What's the result of that? And you may be like, oh, shit. I kind of define that as like true love. And I realize, oh, that's kind of unhealthy. Maybe it's better that we have our own tubs. And we're not sitting on top of each other in a jacuzzi because that sounds sexy, but maybe it's us in separate tubs being connected with our hand outside facing in the same direction. Maybe that's my new definition of love. And if so, what can I do to give my body that experience so I can rewire 
because there's nothing more convincing than an experience. Instead of just listening and seeing something, I need to give my body that experience. Okay, I'm going to talk to my partner about this. And then this is where we could lay new tracks. What would be an example of an experience that would reinforce healthy dependency versus codependency? Go out with your friends tonight. Go to a retreat. Let's be separate. Assuming things are okay. Express to me what you want and I'll tell you what I'm willing to give and not give. Draw boundaries with me. I mean, if your partner said, hey, draw a boundary with me, for many people, it's like, why would I want to? I thought you were my lover. (laughs) Are you telling me to get away? Are you creating distance? No, I'm creating healthy. Draw a boundary with me. What does that look like? And maybe someone would say, okay, well, here's the boundary. I don't want to do it this way every time. Here's what I want to do. I don't have to text you every second of the day. And also, I don't have to text you right away. And you better be okay with that. There's my boundary. For many people, it's like, uh, what? You don't love me? Like that kind of stuff. Stir things up a little bit and see what happens. We've talked about red flags. I want to get into green flags for a second. You had a line in your book that I really, really like that I'm just going to read out loud briefly, which is, your soulmate is not someone who will come into your life peacefully. It will be the person who comes to make you question things to change your reality. It will not be an idealized person you fantasized about, but an ordinary person who challenges you and makes you better. And I think the reason this stuck out to me is because it really speaks to an underlying question that a lot of us have, which is, am I choosing the right person? And how do I know that this person is the right one? So I would love a little bit more about your take on it. And if you could share some qualities or dynamics we could look for to know if the person that we're choosing is the right person for us. First of all, I don't think you should be asking yourself if this is the right person. I don't think you should be asking yourself if this is the one. I think it's a trap. I think it's programming. The truth is there are many people for us. Love is a daily choice, right? There isn't just one one. We live on a planet with billions of people. You're going to be attracted to other people. You just are. We did a video once saying that it's okay to be attracted to other people because we're human. And we got a fucking shitstorm. People were like, what? How can you say that? Like, no. If you deny that, that means you're lying. Now, there's a difference between being attracted to someone because of their qualities or aesthetics or whatever. There's a difference between that and choosing to invest in someone. As far as green flags, yes, of course, I would say some green flags is someone that takes ownership. That's huge. Someone that is not defensive. That's huge. Someone that can create a safe space. That's huge. So maybe if you're dating people, instead of just looking for, you know, six, two and pretty eyes or abs or money, ask yourself, can he or she create a safe space? That's what's needed to build anything sustainable. Do they take ownership? I think there's nothing sexier in this world than someone who takes ownership. Someone who is not defensive says, hey, let's not hear what you're saying. And here's what I'm going to do about it. Like, what is sexier than that? What produces more trust than that? Those are some really big green flags. It's not just hot sex. That's great. But if the person can't provide a safe space, and maybe this is what your friend's experiencing, the sex is hot, but the space is unsafe. That's not going to build anything sustainable. That's just a matter of time before anger, resentment, and then the plane goes down. What I love about what you're saying too is that it would apply to a number of situations across the board. It's not just like, oh, they like the same sports that I like or they're interested in travel the same amount as me. It's more like an approach to life that would apply across all parts of life. 
Yeah, and I'm not saying those things aren't important, but those are too obvious because, of course, we want common values. And if you love travel, that should be important to you and your partnership is at least somewhat like it. But no one talks about, does he or she provide a safe space? Do they assassinate my character? These aren't things that we talk about, and that's why I'm trying to put more weight on those things. How much do our partners need to have the same interests as us, and how much should that be differentiated? I don't think there's like a number. I don't think there's like a percentage. I think every situation is different, but also no relationship is perfect. I love motorcycles. So let's say I find a partner who doesn't like motorcycles and won't get on my bike. To me, that's not a complete no, because what if we match on other things, other values, other passions, right? That's just the one part of my life that she may support, but not be a part of. And again, if that doesn't work for you, is there codependency? Is there some kind of enmeshment dependency? Because it's okay that your partner doesn't like everything that you like, and that's just realistic. But you're getting something out of the relationship that makes up for what is lacking. I don't think all relationships, I mean, maybe there are some, I don't know, that hits on every single cylinder. What if it's something like travel, though, where it's not just like a side hobby, but it's how you're wanting to spend all your leisure time and your partner is not interested? That's very high for you. And that's okay. It's like saying, okay, well, what if you want kids and your partner doesn't? That may be a deal breaker and that's fair. If you want to see the world before you die and your partner's like, I don't want to leave my city ever. I think what's important is, okay, well, that's the truth. And you have to ask yourself if this relationship is for you and it's okay if it's not. That's fair. Okay. Let's do a quick speed round. Number one, what do you do if you hate your partner's friends or family or they hate you? Just because we love our partners doesn't mean that we have to love the people in their life. I think it's okay. There are boundaries. You could say, I love my partner, but I hate her friends. At the same time, you have a responsibility to make an effort at least to work on those friendships or the family members without losing yourself. Just to the extent where you're making effort, not minimizing yourself, your truth, who you are, all that stuff. Okay. We don't have to be besties. We don't have to spend all of our time. Would you even say it's okay to say, I'm not going to come to family dinner every Sunday, or I don't want to spend this holiday with your family or things like that? Yeah. If me and Vanessa's family had a huge differences and every time we get together, it's explosive. I think it's okay to say, I don't want this to be that kind of Christmas, at least to talk about it, you know? By the way, that's, that's not the case in case her family's listening. <laughs> You're like, I love her family. I just want to make that yeah, very yeah. clear. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that you can change people and do you think that it's healthy to want to? I don't think we can change people. I think we can change ourselves. And by changing ourselves, we change the dynamic of the relationship and that actually changes people, if that makes sense. I don't think it's our job to change someone. I think you're wasting a lot of energy and that's ego driven. I do think we have a responsibility to change ourselves. And by doing so, because we're 50% of any relationship, the dynamic of that relationship is going to change. And either that friend, family member, partner is not going to have it. They're going to bounce or they're going to also go on their change journey. And then you're basically a catalyst to their change. So we can be a catalyst. We can be a domino in someone's change, but we ourselves can't and should not try to change someone. I love that answer. And then can you just leave us with one homework assignment, something that we could all start doing as soon as this podcast is over to improve our relationships? Look inward. Start there. We're so quick to blame. 
to judge, to point fingers, to change someone else. Look inward first. Explore yourself, where things are coming from, your behavior before, because most of us have a knee jerk, and I struggle with it too, of saying, oh, it's them. It's you, not me. (laughs) So instead of reacting to your feelings, just exploring, taking a beat, putting that uh, emotional speed bump, following the thread down, where's this coming from? And then through that, you will have revelations about yourself. That is huge. You don't have to have answers. Using your thing as an example, if you realize, oh, in all my relationships, I really needed my partner to be obsessed with me. Okay, I'm willing to look at that. Where does that come from? I think it comes from here. And it's okay that you want that, fine. But what part of it is a good thing? What part of it is unhealthy based on what you've been through and what things have worked and not? If you just kind of start that process, you're already doing so much work. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. A lot of what we talk about on this podcast are low-hanging fruit, little things you can add to your day that will make a huge difference in your health or mindset or just life in general. This product is one of those things for me. While a lot of health stuff is cumulative and all about consistency, this is one of those few things that I notice a difference literally right away. I'm talking, of course, about AG1 by Athletic Greens. I know some of you are scared that this is an overhyped product because you hear so many people talking about it, but I would never promote something that I didn't stand behind entirely. And in this case, it's just one of those things that's super hyped because it's actually that good. Here's the basics. You take a scoop of AG1 and mix it into water, juice, or a smoothie. I like water because I actually really like the taste of AG1, but if you're less keen on the taste, my hot tip is to shake it with ice cubes. It makes a huge difference. But I do really love the flavor. People always ask if I'm lying when I say that, and I'm not. I've really come to crave it. It tastes like bubblegum or tropical vanilla. I will say I might crave it because it makes me feel so good. It's like a Pavlovian response where I'm obsessed with the flavor because I associate it with how good I feel after drinking it. Okay, so you take a scoop, chug whatever you're drinking it with, and boom, you have this incredible insurance that you've gotten your foundational nutrition in, regardless of how the rest of the day goes. Because we're trying to eat all the veggies, all the mushrooms and seaweeds, but we're not perfect, and that's okay. AG1 has 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, and adaptogens to cover your bases. Right after I drink it, I feel like a gentle energy. It's not at all jittery like caffeine, but more just like you just woke up from the best night of sleep. It gives me a ton of mental clarity and clears any sluggishness or brain fog that I have, which is why even though a lot of people start their day with it, I actually prefer to drink mine in the early afternoon, right when I have that 3 p.m. slump. And it's not a placebo effect. AG1 has so many ingredients that have been extensively researched for their brain health effects, like rhodiola root dry extract, hawthorn berry, and rosemary, just to name a few. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. And they're third-party tested, which is always so important to look for. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash healthier together. The vitamin D3 and K2 is amazing. You actually always want to make sure that you look for K2 with your D3 because the K2 helps the D transport calcium to your bones where it's needed rather than calcifying in your arteries, which we do not want. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash healthier together to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. 
Now let's get back to the episode. Can you tell us a little bit in your own words about your book and everything that you're doing online? This is a relationship book written by two therapists, my partner and I. And it was important for us to pull the curtain back and tell people that we're not perfect. We have struggles and we're trying to come with you instead of at you. And so that's why the title is kind of humorous in that it's called, It's Not Me, It's You. And we want to help people stop blaming each other. We want to redefine what love can look like, right? It's two therapists talking about relationships, including their own struggles. So it's part memoir, part self-help. Amazing. I can't wait for everybody to read it. I read it preparing for this interview and I really enjoyed it. I loved the back and forth dynamic where you would kind of share Mm. your perspective and your take and then she would share her perspective and then you had like an action tip. I thought the format was really conducive to readability and to creating real change. Thank you. And I want to applaud your tough questions. This was like me being in the hot seat, which is great because it's not a podcast where it's just fluff, but you're getting a lot of to-dos and things that you want your listeners to walk away with. Thank you. That's my goal. I really love my listeners and I respect their time and I want them to feel like they're getting a lot out of their time. And I so appreciate you being willing to put up with all of those hard questions and taking the time to chat with us today. Yeah. Thank you. And as far as uh, where people can find me, at the Inga Therapist across the board. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay. A few quick things before I let you go. One, our Healthier Together Podcast Club Facebook page is growing like crazy and I could not be happier about it. If you still haven't joined the group, I will link it in the show notes. You can also just search Healthier Together Podcast Club on Facebook. The discussions have been amazing and it is just so cool to see you guys connecting on there. We are also in the process of organizing the Podcast Club in-person meetups all over the world. So if you filled out the Podcast Club survey, expect to hear more on that in the next couple of weeks. Two, the Vitamix giveaway is officially live, so go to my Instagram post called Five Life-Changing Tips I Learned from the Healthier Together podcast to enter or text or email a friend a link to an episode you think they would like. Tell them why they'd like it and take a screenshot and send to giveaway at lizmoody.com with the subject line Vitamix entry. And yes, sending them this episode totally counts. I feel like there's so much interesting shareable stuff in here, so just shoot a link to a friend or tag them on Instagram. If you are new here, make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss out on any future episodes. We have amazing ones coming up, including a brand new gut health episode that you need to listen to before cold and flu season kicks off, and an episode that will completely change how you think about pain. So subscribe, subscribe, subscribe so you do not miss out on anything. Okay, I love you, and I will see you next week on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. When Zach and I started Healthy Convo Co., we needed to find the easiest way to get conversation cards from our warehouse onto our website and into your hands. I thought it was going to be the hardest part of starting a business, but it wound up being one of the easiest because we just used Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling gorgeous ceramics to sip morning tea from or beautiful journals to write prompts from the we're all in this together deck in, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. I know as a consumer, I'm way more likely to buy when a website has Shopify. It has all of my information saved, so checkout becomes a one-click situation, even on small business sites, which makes me so happy because I love shopping small. But it's not just small. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lizm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Liz M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Liz M. 